Thank you for joining us. I'm John Donvan, moderator of the Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, sitting in for Diane Rehm, who is on a station visit to WYPR in Baltimore. Donald Trump slips in the polls again, but there is a debate coming up round two this weekend, a second chance versus Hillary Clinton. The Supreme Court opens its fall term, but still short one justice, which means what sort of paralysis? And the FBI arrests another NSA contractor on suspicions of secret stealing. Joining us for the domestic hour of our Friday News Roundup, let's welcome Molly Ball, staff writer at The Atlantic. Good morning. And Olivier Knox, chief Washington correspondent, Yahoo News. Good morning. And Eliana Johnson, Washington uh, editor for National Review. Hi, great to be here. Well, let's, uh, we're at the point now, one month, one day from the climax of the last year and a half of political drama. Election Day. Um, Eliana, where do things stand? You know, we saw the race stay in a pretty uh, stable spot from when Donald Trump clinched the nomination in May, at the beginning of May, through the Republican convention um, in the middle of July. And that state, uh, Hillary Clinton held about, you know, five to seven point advantage. And then we saw things change. Uh, Hillary Clinton had a health scare. She made a comment about deplorables. Lots of people compared it to Mitt Romney's comment about the 47 percent. And the race really did seem like a toss up going into the first debate. It seems like we've reverted to uh, the initial state of the race. Once again, advantage to Hillary Clinton by, you know, about five to seven points nationally. Um, But what's changed are the underlying uh, number of undecided voters. Uh, There are fewer and fewer undecided voters now. And the third party share, um, most notably Gary Johnson's share of voters, is declining. And what that means is um, the state, that underlying state is more and more uh, baked in. And it's much harder, I think, for Trump going forward to move the needle um, going into this second debate barring some uh, unforeseen circumstance or spectacular performance. Uh, Molly Ball, to the degree that undecided voters have been making up their minds over the past few weeks, which are those voters? Do we know? Uh, Well, you know, having watched the polls and sat in on some some focus groups uh, with undecided voters, it's actually a different phenomenon this year than you usually see. Normally, as the campaign comes down to the final stretch, the undecided voters are the ones that haven't been paying very much attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they just start to tune into the race, and, and maybe they haven't yet made up their minds. In this case, because the uh, two major party nominees are the first and second most unpopular <laughs> major party nominees in history... That means people are paying attention. A lot of people who are paying attention are still undecided. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think Eliana's right that, that, that more and more they are uh, moving to a, a decided position. Uh, and they seem to be gravitating largely to Hillary Clinton. But because there are a lot of people who just don't like their choices, there are some who've been having a hard time deciding, even if they know a lot about the candidates. So, you know, I think Eliana's right about the state of the race uh, and, and, and the underlying factors that we're watching in these last several weeks have more to do with sort of turnout, enthusiasm, different demographic groups. Are they going to decide to vote? How does early voting look? Um, and, uh, and, and do the campaign organizations do a good job of turning out the voters that they've identified? Olivia Knox, um, t- take us a little bit through the electoral math on this at this point, how things are looking as these undecided voters figure out how to decide. Um, well, <clears throat> as, a, as a responsible reporter, I'll steer everybody away from national polls, which are, which are 
you know, entertaining, but don't really mean much because we don't have national elections in this country. We've got state by state. Mm -hmm. um, I think that uh, both of my colleagues are, are, are right to say that, that on, on balance, you'd rather be holding Hillary Clinton's hand than Donald Trump's at this point because she's leading in a lot of leading or has a toss up in a lot of the important battleground states. You know, she's she's been regularly up in Pennsylvania. Um, she looks to be up, according to the real clear politics averages, she's up in Florida. There's a new poll that shows that she's up in Ohio. Um, so it, it seems like it's it, she's she's edging him out in places where he needs to win. And the, the narrative behind that, in other words, what is the thing that is turning p things in her favor? Um, well, I, some of it is a some of it's a, a, a natural Democratic coming home to the party. Mm -hmm. um, people who may have been on the fence. Uh, I don't I actually don't to one of Molly's earlier points. I don't know how volatile the electorate still is. I don't know how baked in these are. I don't know if some of these undecideds are coming off the fence, but might go back on the fence, depending on what happens in the next couple of weeks. Um, the the debate didn't much rattle the race. That was important. You know, Donald Trump still uh, still needs to needs needs something to change the race significantly. Um, Eliana, um, if we're going to look at something that could significantly change the race, what is it that could significantly at this point change the race? I mean, what variables are still out there? I think it, uh, Trump's debate performance could change the race in a small way. If you're talking about something significant, I think it would have to be something on the level of a terrorist attack. And interestingly, I think there's the perception that a terrorist attack would advantage Donald Trump because people seem to uh, trust, at least in poll numbers, people trust Donald Trump on matters of not national security mm -hmm. more than Hillary Clinton. But there's a lot of politi political science research that um, in events like that, in crisis events, people actually gravitate toward the candidate with more experience, the more... Uh, you know, the more level-headed candidate who's been on the national scene longer. So I could see a terrorist attack actually advantaging Hillary Clinton. But I think it'd have to be something catastrophic on that level, some major unforeseen circumstance. Well, it's something that nobody, nobody wants to happen. But could a, well, yeah, what, what do you think? Um, well, I was just going to say, you know, it's possible to take a step back from the entire sort of year and a half, past year and a half of this election and see a very boring race. One candidate led the entire time, basically, in the Republican primaries, and that candidate went on to win. One candidate led the entire time in the Democratic race, and that candidate went on to win. One candidate has been ahead in the general election pretty much since it began. There was a point at which Donald Trump narrowed Hillary Clinton's national lead and in some of the battleground states. But if you look out across the electoral map, Hillary Clinton, I believe, is ahead in every single battleground state on average except for Iowa. And Trump needs to win all of the states that Mitt Romney won, all of those battleground states, plus some more because Mitt Romney lost the election. Currently, he is behind in almost every swing state. And so it would take a very dramatic, unforeseen set of events. And I think it would take more probably even than simply an adequate debate performance. Uh, and the fact that his first debate performance uh, was was not very good. Uh, and uh, the, and despite his vice presidential nominee having a pretty good outing, uh, doesn't seem to have moved people toward So you're, you're not actually on the edge of your seat about this. <laughs> of course I am. I, I want I, I, I always think these things are interesting. I'm, I'm I never predict outcomes. And I think, you know, there are a lot of underlying questions uh, for both candidates. Uh, but let's not make this more interesting than it is. Uh, Olivier, <laughs> um, 
we, we were talking about variables, potentially. Everybody's talking about something catastrophic. Sure. But um, Molly has just said a, a second debate performance that would be much better for Donald Trump wouldn't be much of a game changer. What do you think of that? We're, we're three days away, two days away from the second debate. Is it something, could, could Trump have such a moment where he would reverse this dynamic? Well, it would also depend on, on whether something big happens between now and the debate and he gets to amplify it on the debate stage. And I'm thinking of something like, and I, I have no indication that this is the case, but it's a bombshell revelation about uh, Hillary Clinton's State Department or the Clinton Foundation mm-hmm. or, the connect, or the nexus between them. Um, something that he could amplify on, on the world stage, something terrible happening. Uh, well, let's say it's not that. Let's just say it's <clears throat> the chance to, um, to, to, to play it better than he did the first time out. I, I don't think that would... I mean, unless he really played it significantly well and she fell down physically, I don't see the debate uh, changing a lot. How come? Because, as we've been saying, there's there's been this natural coming home of voters. There are fewer and fewer undecided voters. It's not clear that just one debate outing versus, you know, a year and a half of, of campaign coverage is going to swing these people one way or another. That said, um, Eliana, what do you think that Trump is doing in terms of preparing for this debate? You know, I think last night we saw Donald Trump hold uh, – you know, a town hall that he said and many people thought was going to be sort of a practice run at the debate. Mm-hmm. And his performance really suggested otherwise. And the way his campaign set it up suggested otherwise. He had a friendly moderator who posed questions um, from the audience. He didn't actually take questions from individuals in the audience. And his res- responses, I think, were self-indulgent, undisciplined. Um, he took the opportunity to mock and deride journalists and reporters, and I don't think presented himself as or would have quelled people's reservations about having a presidential temperament, which is the number one concern uh, among voters, uh, undecided voters about him. He's also now scheduled an event for Saturday night in Wisconsin, and the debate is on Sunday. So at a time when I think the people who want him to win would like him to be sort of sequestering himself in the tower and, and reviewing briefing books, you know, a problem that, 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 that people who are close to Donald Trump will tell you he's always had is his attention span and his ability to focus. And he seems to much more just want to go out there and talk to the voters, which he's good at, uh, than to buckle down and, uh, and, and practice for the debate. He actually last night at his town hall mocked Hillary Clinton <laughs> for preparing for the debate uh, and and said, oh, you know, she doesn't have the energy, the stamina, she's resting. Uh, and the people who want Donald Trump to win hear things like that and sort of sigh because uh, they would like him to prepare more and he just doesn't seem interested. The other thing you hear from a lot of Republican folks who, who do campaigns is that he's not just talking to the voters, he's talking to his voters and he's not broadening his appeal very much. That's right. And if, and if I could add to the the conversation about what could change this election, the thing that I'm most interested in, the thing that I think could be the X factor is not about anything that happens between now and Election Day. It's about a change in the electorate that we've somehow not perceived. If, you know, because pollsters are building their models off of the last few elections. And it is and it's possible that we are going to see an entirely new electorate, that Donald Trump has galvanized a new sector of particularly the white working class vote and former Democrats and people who haven't voted in recent elections. And the Obama coalition of young voters and minorities is is not as excited about Hillary Clinton as she needs them to be. All right, more when we come back. We'll be looking at the jobs report. We'll be taking a look back also at the vice presidential uh, debate and see what difference it made. Our guests, Molly Ball, Olivia Knox, and Eliana Johnson. This is the Weekly News Roundup. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to The Diane Reem Show.
Decius Daily. Decius Daily. Decius Daily. It's news, culture, and curiosities. From the district, Tacoma Park, Alexandria, Friendship Heights, Hyattsville, Falls Church, Northeast Washington, D.C., in your inbox every weekday afternoon. DCS Daily. Sign up at dcs.com slash newsletter. dcs.com slash newsletter. Welcome back. I'm John Donvan sitting in for Diane Rehm. We are having our weekly news roundup. Our guests, Molly Ball, Olivier Knox, and Eliana Johnson. And we're, we're spending a fair amount of time on uh, the election, given that we're a month and a day away from um, the day of the vote. And we did have a, an interesting blip in interest, I would say, this week in the vice presidential debate. It was um, predicted to be probably a little bit bland and boring and second tier. It was actually very, very high topic of conversation, partly because um, the energy that Tim Kaine brought to the debate um, caught a lot of people's attention and it sounded like this. It was in uh, Ukraine or now their heavy-handed approach. You, you, you both their heavy-handed said, approach. You, you both have said Vladimir Putin well, is better than Gentlemen, we're going to get to Russia in just a moment. She, she had a Clinton Foundation accepting contributions from foreign governments. You, and you foreign are Donald Trump, uh, Trump's apprentice. Uh, no. let, let me talk about this Senator, issue I think, of the, of I think I'm still on my time. Well, I think, are, isn't this a discussion? Molly Ball, um, th- those were a couple of excerpts that we put together, but there were s- famously 72 episodes of uh, Tim Kaine interrupting um, Mike Pence throughout that debate, making him some, something of the great interrupter. Uh, and and the, the analysis almost immediately was that Kaine hurt himself by by breaking in so much. What's your take on it? I definitely think voters did not get a good impression of Tim Kaine. His, he came across as very grating, very sort of high-strung, and, and, and he seemed nervous. Uh, and he didn't make much of a positive case for, for Hillary Clinton, but he was very focused on Donald Trump. And so the question is more about uh, did he help Hillary Clinton than about did he hurt himself. And, you know, that was that clip that you just played is a perfect synopsis because on the one hand you have this jumpy and kind of annoying Tim Kaine constantly obsessively wanting to turn the conversation back to Donald Trump. On the other hand, Mike Pence seems to be operating in a different universe mm-hmm. than the person he's running with and is saying and is denying a lot of things that are that are completely true that his running mate has said. And so you have Mike Pence articulating a completely different stance on Russia from Donald Trump. And and Tim Kaine sort of going, can we get back to reality here, the real world where Donald Trump likes Russia? Eliana, did that work? Well, I would say, you know, there's been that the conventional wisdom is sort of gelled around this idea that Hillary Clinton and Tim Kaine need to make a positive case for a Clinton presidency. I actually think that's completely wrong. We're seeing <laughs> that uh, they they don't feel the need to make a positive case, and she's doing well in the polls um, because Donald Trump has uh, continued to not run a very effective campaign, and simply making the case that he's unpresidential and unqualified to be president seems to be working actually pretty well for them. Well, one thing that the, one thing that the de- Democrats did with that Tim Kaine performance was they cut it up and edited it in a very very interesting way, where they've strung together Tim Kaine breaking in with an accusation that Trump said such and such, Mike Pence denying such and such was said, and then sound of Trump or Pence saying the thing that Pence said that they didn't say. Here's an example of that. 
Let's start with not praising Vladimir Putin as a great leader. Donald Trump and Mike Pence have said he's a great leader. And Donald Trump has... No, biz- we have has- Putin's been a very strong leader for Russia. Vladimir Putin has been a stronger leader in his country than Barack Obama has been in this country. Okay, there, that, that particular, now that's part of an ad. I mean, it goes on and on and on, cut out of the debate. What, what about that? Uh? Well, people, people forget how important um, the post-debate spin struggle can be for, you, for either for the, for the campaigns. They'll know Pe- it now, thanks to Donald Trump. Yeah, but also, people, <laughs> right, but for example, the, in 2000, Al Gore sighing was, the, we, all, we all remember that now, but we actually didn't remember it in, in real time. That was the work of about a week's worth of aggressive spin by the Bush campaign and the Republican Party. Um, and, uh, and it's continued through every campaign I've ever covered, that the post, the, the, the first three or four days after the debate are really important for gelling people's impressions. Um, Hillary Clinton did the same thing in her debate with Donald Trump when she sprang that Miss Universe story mm-hmm. toward the end of it. And they clearly had a, a, whole, uh, a whole arsenal of Miss Universe-related materials ready to go. Um, so the, the, the Clinton campaign has done a really pretty, a pretty solid job of taking the post-debate spin uh, cycles, plural, um, and, and really molding them to her advantage. Legitimately, do you think, or is it just a question of whose side you're on? Legitimately in the sense that, that well, I mean, in, in the Tim Kaine, Mike Pence, Donald Trump mm-hmm. sequence that we just heard, mm-hmm. um, this is one of the easiest, thing, e- easiest things ever, right? Um, uh, uh, Tim Kaine says Donald Trump said X. Pence said no, he didn't, or some variation, no, he didn't. And then they show the video. It's very simple. It's easy yeah. for voters and the press to understand. And um, so legitimately, I mean, sure, it, 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 simplistically, but legitimately. Molly Ball, years ago, Ronald Reagan was debating Walter Mondale, and uh, and Mondale put some charge or other behind. Before him and Reagan's response was, there you go again. And it was seen as a very effective deflection. And there was hints, there were hints of that in Mike Pence uh, when, um, when Tim Kaine brought up Donald Trump's comments about Mexicans. Pence's response was, well, there you've whipped out that Mexican thing again, which very quickly became a hashtag. Was, was it, did it work for Pence the way it worked for Reagan? I think to a certain point it did, and then it started to uh, be too much. He literally did say, there you go again at one point, and sort of paused for effect for everybody to get the joke. Um, but there's only so many times you can do that. And he and, and by the end of the debate, there was that awkward phrasing where he said that Mexican thing, and you did have a lot of people on social media who thought that was hilarious. I thought it was a sort of um, silly, you know, verbal, verbal gaffe. But, but, but I think that for a lot of the types of voters that Hillary Clinton is trying to activate, and in particular Latino voters, that that came across as dismissive to say, oh, you know, why do you keep harping on the fact that he insulted Mexicans? Well, to uh, Latino voters, it's very important that Donald Trump insulted Mexicans, and they and and they don't see that as a sufficient explanation that that it ought to simply be overlooked or glossed over. So I think that's the significance of that particular moment. Eliana, based on everything you've said so far in this conversation, I'm doubting that you think this debate was much of a game changer one way or the other. I don't think it was too much of a game changer. I don't usually think vice presidential debates change much. I do think the debate was important, number one, in shifting the media narrative. In that sense, I think it was good for Donald Trump in that it got the media away from talking about the Elisa Machado Miss Universe thing. Mm -hmm. Number two, I do think it was significant in kind of exposing the crisis within the Republican Party in that Mike Pence, in denying Trump had said what he said, and in defending positions that Trump hasn't actually taken on Russia, for example, and on criminal justice reform, uh, Mike Pence advocating criminal justice reform, Donald Trump Trump has repeatedly taken a law and order line, uh, 
you know, 180 degrees away from that, I think really exposed, uh, you know, the the rift between the presidential and, and vice presidential nominee on the Republican t- ticket, which is just a microcosm of the crisis happening uh, within the party. And I think it was significant in that regard. All right. Let's move on from that debate. And I do want to mention we have this hurricane situation uh, taking place, Hurricane Matthew. And at this moment, um, we're informed that President Obama is being briefed by Homeland Security and by FEMA and that he will be making a statement from the White House shortly on that. Now I want to turn to uh, some of our listeners and bring in Alex from Houston. Alex, welcome to the Diane Reem Show. Alex, you there? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you clearly now. So uh, okay, what's your question or that. comment? No problem. Uh, yes, um, I just wanted to disagree with you on, um, on the polling. Um, you know, one of the examples I give on on my disagreement is when I don't y'all do remember when Cruz and Trump, um, the primary before Ted Cruz dropped out, the polls had Cruz winning. Now, I was a Cruz supporter from the beginning, and they had Cruz. Um, I think it was Nebraska or Kentucky or some state or Indiana. I can't remember what state last primary before Cruz dropped out, and they had Cruz winning in all the polls. And when we got the results that night, he got obliterated. I mean, he was swept out. I mean, no one saw that coming that Trump was going to win that big the way he won. And so I think the polls are showing the same thing. And um, I, I told your call taker that <clears throat> one of the reasons I say that is that when I see the rallies, I see, you know, Hillary um, busing in people, um, handing out signs to people to, <laughs> to present her rallies. And I see 700 at the most. And you see Donald Trump's, and I remember a couple well, of things. Alex, he panned me... out. He panned out, and there were thousands upon thousands of people supporting him. So I don't think all those polls are accurate. I think they're okay. a little skewed. I think the overpoll, overpoll maybe Alex, I'm, Democrats. I, Alex, Alex, forgive me for interrupting you, not because I don't think you're making a good point. I think you're making a very interesting point. I just want to give a chance to Molly Ball to respond to, I think, your basic point being you distrust these metrics. And and you see another metric, which is the size of the crowds that show up for Trump and an enthusiasm that Alex is saying he does not see there for Hillary. And he's saying, what about these polls now and in the past? Yeah, it's important to remember that thousands of people can attend a campaign rally, but a hundred, more than 100 million people will vote in this presidential election. And it is very easy for campaigns to get the wrong signal from the crowds that they see in front of them, which represent the smallest sliver and the hardest core of their enthusiastic support. And we repeatedly seen Donald Trump citing the size of his crowds as a sign of the enthusiasm there is for him. There absolutely are a lot of people who are very enthusiastic about Donald Trump, but that absolutely does not mean that they are the majority of the electorate. You know, I think the caller was referring specifically to the polls in the Indiana primary. Uh, Cruz was ahead early on, and then he fell behind. And by the time the primary was held, Trump had been uh, enjoying a sizable lead in the primary polling uh, for for more than a week because the electorate had shifted behind him. The well, polls are usually right, and it's always a very bad sign for the campaign when they start to believe the polls are wrong. Just a thought experiment for the three of you who are political reporters. If there were no polls, if the technology did not exist to take polls, what would you all be talking about? What would, we, what would you be doing for a living? <laughs> I think we'd be talking about the same things that we are talking about in addition to the polls, which is the issues and the debates between the candidates and Donald Trump's outrageous statements and mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton's, uh, you know, support with various groups. And, you know, I think. But th- I guess my point is, does it matter 
to know that at this particular date one candidate is leading in this place or that place? Does it matter? You know, as the argument often often made by the candidates themselves when they're behind in the polls is the poll that matters is on election day. And <laughs> I was, um, I'm and just going to say, let's trot out that cliche, right? Because <laughs> well, it's true, right? I mean, it is true. These yeah. are snapshots. These are moments in time in a campaign, and they are helpful, but they're not dispositive. You can't look at a poll. Even so, in mid-October, so why do we talk about it? them so much? Because we're trying to track, we're trying to track the evolution of the race. We're trying mm-hmm. to get a sense of where it's going. Mm-hmm. We're trying to reduce uncertainty for our listeners and our readers and our viewers. And one of the ways to do that is to figure out who the voters are and what they think of the race at a given moment. But I think I think what we've learned uh, from history, if we had known polls, is that the intensity of a candidate's support is not the same thing as breadth of support. And there's no question that Donald Trump has more intense, excited, enthusiastic supporters Mm -hmm. than does Hillary Clinton. Um, But I think it's probably the case, and again, we'll see on election date, that her, she has a larger volume of supporters, even if they're less enthusiastic. And we've learned that in the past. Mitt Romney had, you know, huge rallies, very enthusiastic supporters. But when you go into the voting booth, when a voter goes into the voting booth, it doesn't matter how excited or enthusiastic that voter is to uh, to pull the lever for a candidate. What matters is how many of those voters there are. And I think at the end of the day, um, if Donald Trump fails, it will be because not because he didn't excite particular voters enough, but because he didn't reach enough of them, communicate with enough of them. Molly, we have a jobs report out today of the Labor Department with with rather disappointing numbers, given that it was expected that there would be 172,000 jobs added. Um, In September, it was 156,000, so it came short by nearly 20,000. And then the numbers for July were revised downward, and the unemployment rate has ticked up from 4.9 to 5 percent. And relating this once again to the campaign, Hillary Clinton has been running on her message that actually under President Obama, things have been have evened out and been pretty decent. So how does this jobs number play into what's going on? It's always a bit of a Rorschach test, especially in the heat of a campaign. And you do have the two sides telling different stories about the state of the economy overall. Um, and, and, and that applies to this jobs report. On the one hand, uh, the top line number did fall a little bit short, though not dramatically. Uh, and you did have the unemployment rate tick up. Some people will tell you that that is because there is more confidence in the economy. More people who are looking for jobs are getting jobs, and that has spurred more people who were out of the labor force to enter the labor force. And so it's actually sort of the denominator that is that is causing the increase in the unemployment rate. On the one hand, wages are growing. On the other hand, growth is still sluggish. So I think uh, we do see increased confidence in the economy. And I see this anecdotally talking to voters, that, that sense of sort of shell shock and uncertainty and, and feeling like they don't know where their next paycheck is going to come from has has mostly vanished and people are feeling a little bit more secure. But there's still a lot of uncertainty about the future. And there is definitely not a sense that we are on a path upward. And so, you know, I think uh, Trump has tapped into um, a lot of voters sense that that things are out of control and that nobody has a a, a plan to make things better. Uh, But to the extent that people would like to stay the course and see things get gradually better, uh, uh, I think Clinton is, is hoping that more people feel that way. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to The Diane Rehm Show. Let's bring in Robert from Cape Elizabeth, Maine. Robert, welcome to The Diane Rehm Show. Hello. It's a real treat to be on the uh, Friday News Roundup. I was wondering if you could do me a quick favor and encourage Diane Rehm to stay on for a few years, because I think <laughs> no matter what happens in the election, we're going to need her. Um, I, w- I had a question about down-ballot issues here in Maine. We're voting on recreational marijuana and um, 
background checks on personal gun sales, and that might drive out particular constituencies. And I was wondering if the panel knew of any other states that had these kind of citizen initiatives that might drive out voters. Thank you. Yeah, there's a lot of fascinating issues on the ballot across the country. You have marijuana on the ballot in several states, including California uh, and Arizona, I believe, and several others. And uh, appears to be leading, in both of those states at least, uh, there are uh, gun-related ballot initiatives, and I think it will be interesting to see what effect those have. You could see that kind of an initiative uh, galvanizing voters on both sides, because there are such strong feelings on both sides of those kinds of issues. I think these, um, because the person, the presidential contest has been such a sort of attention-sucking contest of personalities, there's been less attention to these down-ballot currents. Um, but I think we're all going to wake up the day after Election Day and see how these things have turned out. And ballot initiatives tend to tell us about sort of major shifts in public opinion on specific issues that maybe we didn't know were coming. For example, in 2012, we sort of woke up the day after Election Day and saw that gay marriage had won in four states, which had never happened before. Before. And that sort of uh, signified a, a shift in public opinion and ratified a shift in public opinion that had been percolating beneath the surface. So, so those are important things to watch. All right. We're going to come up and uh, take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about what's happening with the Supreme Court, where we are down uh, one justice as a new session begins, and also the issue of this new case of potential NSA spying, which is uh, profoundly alarming. Our guests are Molly Ball, staff writer for The Atlantic, Olivier Knox, chief Washington correspondent for Yahoo News, and Eliana Johnson, Washington editor of National Review. I'm John Donvan, and you are listening to The Diane Reem Show. Welcome back. I'm John Donvan, host and moderator of the Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates, sitting in for Diane Rehm. It's our weekly news roundup. Our guests, Molly Ball of The Atlantic, Olivier Knox of Yahoo News, and Eliana Johnson of The National Review. And I want to remind our listeners that, of course, we have the second presidential debate coming up Sunday night, and our colleague Robert Siegel will be anchoring live coverage airing on many NPR stations beginning at 9 o'clock Eastern Time, along with live fact-checking at NPR.org. We have um, a Supreme Court session beginning, um, the fall term beginning today. Um, Olivier, we have eight justices, um, and we still have eight justices. And we we will still have eight justices, and we're not going to have nine justices until... um, some number of months uh, into the next president's term, by all, by all accounts, from Senate Republicans. What does that say for decision-making by the court? Well, it's it's obviously problematic um, because you, you have the impact of a 4-4 tie by, mm. uh, on the Supreme Court. Um, uh, and you have a lot of – you have a lot of cases that may not be um, – 
that may end up being being stalemated. In effect, I mean, they, they would uphold the uh, the lower court's rulings uh, by virtue of having a tie, as opposed to by virtue of having a, a clear majority opinion. Um, and we've got issues of um, racial bias in, in criminal justice, uh, voting rights, redistricting, and of course the 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 thing that keeps. Uh, those of us who covered the, two, the 2000 election up at night, the possibility of you right. know, another another electoral meltdown that ends up before the Supreme Court. Right. Say there's a tie like there was in 2000. I mean, let's be clear. We don't want that. Please. We don't want that. <laughs> but but it seems to me that would, you know, that would be the one that breaks the Constitution. If, um, if we have um, a tie in the Electoral College, Molly Ball, and it goes to a Supreme Court that splits 4-4, then what? Uh, I have no idea what would happen in that case. I think that's that's the problem is that there there is no uh, recourse beyond that, and and it is it would be a we, completely we really unprecedented situation. We really do not know what would happen. Uh, I, I do think it is far fetched, but it is a possibility, and I think it gives a lot of people pause. And it and it points up the problem with having uh, you know a four four Supreme Court, and, and the reason that there is such urgency around trying to. Uh, get that ninth seat filled. Eliana, I mean, there, there is a nominee, uh, Merrick Garland. Um, he's been waiting for his day before confirmation hearings uh, all year, uh, which have not happened. Is there any scenario in which you would see, if Hillary Clinton were to win, that there would be a lame duck session confirmation process for Merrick Garland on the thought that at least he's somebody who would be palatable to more Republicans than in, in the imagination of Republicans Hillary Clinton might later nominate? You're already hearing that argument. However, it's coming, I think, mostly from Democrats and uh, liberal columnists. Um, who The people you're not hearing it from are even moderate Republicans. I think Republicans uh, really in the Senate and in the House believe that there's no substantive difference between Merrick Garland, who uh, has characterized himself and I think is perceived to be a judicial uh, moderate, you know, center on the center left, and, you know, the furthest left wing uh, judicial activists that Hillary Clinton might moderate. And in I think in that sense, Republicans want to get the credit with voters for sticking to their guns on this one, mm-hmm. given that they don't believe that they're, um, on judicial matters that there will be any huge difference. So, no, I, I don't see him getting confirmed in a lame duck session. Yeah, remember what we're talking about. When we're talking about a lame duck session. We're talking about maybe three weeks of work at a time when they need to do really basic things that they haven't been able to do very easily in the past seven years. We're talking about funding the government, things like that. There are a couple of very basic priorities that need to be addressed. Um, the Senate just does not have the bandwidth to do those things and to take to do the, the, the kind of confirmation hearings and vote that a Supreme Court confirmation would require. Let's bring in Rich from Seminole, Florida. Rich, welcome to the Diane Reem Show. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Uh, let me say this. I disagree with what I just heard because my feeling is that uh, assuming that uh, Hillary swamps Trump and the Democrats take the Senate, I think Mitch McConnell would break his arm to uh, get uh, Merrick Garland uh, 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 appointed, uh, let's say confirmed, uh, because uh, if he waits until January 20th, Hillary might uh, and probably will uh, appoint a more liberal uh, justice. And if that's the case, then uh, then the, the Republicans' only uh, recourse is to uh, filibuster, and I don't think that's going to work. Rich, I, I, I'm seeing 
skepticism on the faces of all three of our panelists. <laughs> Molly Ball? No, I do think that's a possibility. It, I mean, it makes sense what, it, what, it, what it, 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 it makes sense on paper. I think that what Olivier said about the logistical hurdles is actually probably more of a factor. You know, uh, no Republican can say, particularly publicly before the election, that they would ever contemplate doing such a thing. But after the election, particularly as the caller says, if they've been absolutely uh, shellacked, uh, the Republic, it might seem like a more attractive possibility to uh, to get this done, but but it, it would just be very very difficult. As as Olivier said, it would be just very very difficult to get all the hearings in uh, in a session that that might last no longer than than nine workdays. And what what I'm hearing from Republicans, some of whom work on the Judiciary Committee, is that this simply is not happening. Not only because of the time constraints, but because. Um, I don't know if people have noticed, but Republican voters right now are not particularly receptive to practical cases, um, practical cases being made like, listen, this guy is slightly better than the guy slightly to his left who Hillary Clinton might nominate. They want credit for sticking to their guns on this. Mitch McConnell wants credit with voters and he will likely get it. And meanwhile, he's paid no price for uh, for being an obstructionist on this. And there's some appeals on both sides to starting Hillary's term with a Supreme Court yeah, confirmation fight there where Hillary wants it to clarify some of the ideological issues there and the Republicans want it because it would be, you know, an all-consuming kind of activity for, for, for several months. Last weekend, the New York Times comes out with this story suggesting that Donald Trump um, took such a huge uh, tax deduction for losses uh, back in 1995 that he probably hasn't paid personal income taxes in 18 years, with no suggestion whatsoever that that's illegal. In fact, Trump has said it's legal, and I played the law the way that I could. And um, he's 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 his his ally Rudy Giuliani has called that a stroke of genius. Um, I'm wondering what, where does that where does the arithmetic come out on that? Does it since since he broke no law, Molly Ball? Since everybody understands you do what you can to avoid paying taxes legally, what's the big deal? Well, anecdotally, in my conversations with voters, and and certainly in in, in a lot of polls, you do see that this is a concern for people. Even a majority of Republicans believe that Trump should have released his taxes so we could get a better picture of his finances. And we heard Hillary Clinton hammering Donald Trump on this issue repeatedly in the first debate. That wasn't a coincidence. She's pulled every single attack line to a fairly well, and she has an idea of what it is about Trump that gives voters pause, particularly swing voters or conservative-leaning independents uh, who who might be on the fence because they have doubts about Trump's temperament. And uh, we've seen it's also a very effective way to get under Donald Trump's skin to raise questions about his finances. And that's exactly what happened in the first debate. Look, people's basic sense of fairness is seems to be offended by this, whether or not that's legitimate. There was a poll before this story came out asking people, uh, asking voters, do you think that everybody has a civic duty to, to, to chip in and pay taxes? Or do you think that people should pay as little as possible? And you can quibble with the wording of the poll. Most people are probably somewhere in between. But 86% of Vote, likely voters in this poll said they think people have a sort of civic responsibility uh, to, to chip in and pay taxes. So I think on just a gut level of I pay taxes and this rich guy doesn't, mm-hmm. uh, it does offend people on some level. Eliana Johnson, um, we all know the name Edward Snowden. We have since 2013 um, leaked um, critical amount, large amount of critical uh, NSA documents after he swiped them as an employee for Booz Allen Hamilton, his um, organization to which um, 
um, NSA outsources uh, some of its work. And now we have a man named Harold T. Martin III who works for Booz Allen Hamilton. Who is he? He is another Booz Allen uh, contractor who was working in the National Security Agency who uh, appears to have taken home many highly classified documents, but at least on the surface, and uh, I would uh, add a cautionary note that we don't know the full story mm -hmm. yet, appear he has taken home highly classified documents um, in violation of the law, but his wife has told the New York Times that he was more likely to be a hoarder than somebody who, like Edward Snowden, uh, took these documents with the intention of leaking them mm -hmm. and exposing a highly classified program. I don't quite understand the distinction between a hoarder. I mean, what, what's a hoarder? What, what motives does a hoarder have for that, hoarding? Uh, he was very likely simply to have taken the documents, left them at home. Uh, he was a highly patriotic person and that she would be shocked had if he had taken these documents home with the intention of leaking them, exposing them, uh, violating national security to do damage to the United States. But any indication of what he did intend to do with them by bringing them home? Simply working from home. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, and so, but I would add, we don't know. It, it is possible that he could have shared them with another country. Uh, we simply don't know right now. Olivier, how worrying is it? I mean, given the fact that after Snowden, the whole point was we're never going to let anything like this happen again. And again, we're, we're, we're taking Eliana's point that there's a lot that we don't know. Yeah, it's know. too early to say yeah. exactly what his motivation was and, and whether the big the big crucial question is, um, w was Mr. Martin um, behind any of the non-Snowden leaks of the last couple of years? Mm -hmm. um, and they're still working to figure out whether that's the case. There seems to be some skepticism, certainly from his wife and from some of the investigators who were quoted anonymously in news stories that he's the source of leaks. Um, Working from home, uh, I think there was an early report uh, that he might be using it as part of his Ph.D. studies. Uh, there, we, we just don't yet. It is obviously worrying, uh, especially if you're the NSA. This is another blemish on, on, on the NSA. This is the supposedly the most uh, highly technically skilled intelligence agency, uh, you know, and, and they're, they're finding that, once again, someone inside their ranks has uh, absconded with classified information. Molly Ball? Yeah, it's, it's always the case that in national security, humans are the weak link in the chain, and there's only so much you can do to prevent humans from uh, exploiting their position. Obviously, the reason it's illegal to do things, even like work from home, from classified information, is that that does create vulnerabilities in the system that can be exploited by bad actors. Uh, we, and, you know, But as uh, Eliana and Olivier said, we don't know at this point what the motives of this person were. I'm John Donvan, and you are listening to The Diane Reem Show. We're getting a lot of tweets that relate back to uh, the beginning part of our conversation, the election, obviously. Um, one from uh, Darren, actually in the form of an email, asks, would you address the issue of Trump saying that the only way he could lose is if there is voter fraud? That statement scares the hell out of me. I'm quoting Darren. Eliana? Impact of Donald Trump saying he can only lose through voter fraud. You know, Trump's case the whole time has been that the system is rigged, and it's been a very compelling case, I think, to the segment of supporters um, who have gotten behind him most strongly. I think it's a dangerous case to make to the American people. Um, if he does lose, he said at the first debate that he would accept the outcome of the election, and I think that that statement flies in the face of it. Um, and it is dangerous. I don't think it's good for the country to have a presidential candidate uh, saying that. And I think he should, you know, he should be call called on it. And you heard echoes of it. And I think it was Alex from Houston saying the polls are BS because Trump's drawing a lot of supporters to his rallies. And Trump's really tapped into this. Um, the question is whether he 
he can kind of turn it off. He's got it. He's got he's got people very excited about this, very worked up about this. You know, come vote for me, or else the the, the system, this rigged system, is going to win. The question is whether ha- what happens the day after if he if he's lo- if he I, loses. Yeah, Malibu, I've been thinking back to two thousand when um, when the Supreme Court essentially decided the election and. There were supporters of Al Gore who had a strong sense that they had been robbed. But Gore's position basically was to say, it's over. That's it. I may not be happy, but the process has reached its conclusion. How important is that kind of reception of a loss, especially if it were to turn out to be close? It's very important. And, you know, you didn't see the supporters of Al Gore take to the streets or, or, or march on the courthouses or anything like that. And I think a lot of that was because he said the things that he did and encouraged people to, to you know, keep faith in democracy and accept uh, the results of the system. I don't think anybody has confidence that Trump would be that kind of cooler head prevailing, and uh, you know, and the just, consequences could be what the, the consequences could be could be massive and 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 very worrisome. You know, just this morning, uh, Trump uh, was speaking to, I believe, the Border Patrol Union and say and accusing the Democrats on no evidence of of bringing people illegally over the border in order to cast illegal votes. That kind of thing undermines people's confidence in the system and sets up the possibility for uh, for for really kind of scary reactions to the election after it occurs. I would mm-hmm. add, you know, we saw this with Nixon and Kennedy in 1960, where Richard Nixon had a real case that electoral fraud actually did undermine uh, his victory. And he uh, he gave the election to Kennedy without challenging it. And I do think in this election, we've seen a real fray- fraying um, of some of the civic ties that bind people together, including a belief that we have a great system, that the system works. And I think that's critically important to uh, presidential, not only presidential elections, but all of our elections and American civic life. Let's bring in uh, Henry from Yellow Springs, Ohio. Henry, welcome to the Diane Reem Show. Yes, please. Thanks. Um, I have for a time, I don't think Trump really wants to win this. He's, he's not, you know, I mean, beyond not preparing, he's, he's saying a lot of things that, that, uh, Again, I, I think he does not want to win. Are you, I'd be interested Henry, in are, are, are you suggesting he's sabotaging himself by things like, I don't know, his debate performance? Yes. Well, well, interesting question. Let's take it to uh, yep. Olivier. Um, you know, that's been a recurring refrain. I've heard I've heard this mostly actually from Republicans over the past year or so. Every time there's a, the, a significant, uh, what we would have called in a previous cycle, a significant Trump gaffe, um, they ask themselves and they ask rather publicly on Twitter and other in other social media, does Trump really want to win? Is he really out to lose and destroy the Republican Party? Um, it's interesting also to me to, that he has spent so much time on the stump uh, countering this, right? He keeps saying, if, I, if I'm if i not really in it to win it, then it's, this is the biggest waste of time and money ever. And it's fascinating to me that he feels the need to to sort of to counter that, that argument. Um, but I, I would tend to think that uh, this is a guy who wants to win. He wants to win so much that he'll get tired of winning, as we know. Um, <laughs> and I would be, I would be frankly stunned to to find that he was actually not interested in winning. Molly Ball. It's such an interesting question. What's your take on that? Well, it's not because it's impossible to resolve, right? I mean, none of us live inside Donald Trump's brain, so we can't ever really know the answer if he has some motivation that we don't know about. But if there's anything that we can conclude from the entire trajectory of Donald Trump's life and career, it's that he's obsessed with winning. Winning is the only thing he cares about. It's in, it, it's possibly his only ideology. And so I think uh, he, he has been making so many blunders that some people conclude that he can't possibly uh, be trying. He must be doing this on purpose. But, you know, he, he's he's a 70-year-old man. He's been 
doing things his way his entire life, and this is his way. We have about 45 seconds, Eliana, for you to answer what I think is a good sit-down question from Matt via Twitter asking if the the course you're all talking about leading to a Trump loss is fulfilled. What happens to the GOP? Are they figuring, trying to figure that out now, or are they going to wait to see what happens? I think people have... In Republicans and conservatives started thinking about this when Trump seized the nomination, certainly when they found he had a following in the Republican Party. The real reckoning will come after November 8th, and I do think there will be a reckoning. We've heard, I think, liberals and Democrats starting to say Republicans are going to pretend Trump never happened. I do not think there will be the case. I think the reckoning will be vigorous and very acrimonious. Eliana Johnson, thanks for joining us. Olivier Knox and Molly Ball, thanks to all of you for joining us on The Diane Rehm Show. I'm John Donvan, host and moderator of the Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates. I've been sitting in for Diane Rehm, and thank you so much for listening.